0: In uh, 2005, a blog on uh, NBC News was posted titled 10 Things America Wants in Its President in 2016. 10 Things America Wants in Its President in 2016. Let me just give you the first three. Number one. We hunger for a leader who is authentic. We hunger for a leader who is authentic. A leader whose thoughts, words, and actions are in alignment with a set of genuine values. A leader who knows that they don't have to be perfect, but desires perfection as a goal. A leader who puts country over party no matter the consequences and who is genuine in their approach to all sides in reaching solutions number two a leader who retains the values of our incredible past of this country but is forward-looking in what we want to accomplish A leader who understands the constitutional principles upon which this great nation was founded, but is setting an invative vision ahead that moves us all to a better place. And finally, number three, we want a leader who is not afraid to show their heart, to convey deep feelings on heartfelt concerns, and to show a level of vulnerability. But we also want a leader who can hold strong and claim calm in a storm of data and information and desires. We want a leader who is intellectually curious, who looks for new solutions to problems, and it is not trapped in the mantra of the old ways but also has a big enough heart to embrace Americans across segments and divisions. Saints, what do you desire in a leader? What are your qualifications for one who is seeking to rule? When you consider the next president of the United States, or maybe the next manager in your uh, workforce, What are the things that you look for, the things that you want, when someone is up for the job? As we come to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17, we have before us the qualifications of one who was to be king. And what we want to see this morning is not just how these qualifications relate to the rulers in general, but we want to see how these qualifications relate to Christ in particular. In Deuteronomy 17, what we have before us is how a king is to rule, how a king is to act, who a king is to be. And the beautiful thing about our text this morning is it pictures for us The glorious King that we have in Jesus Christ. Our theme this morning is Christ, our sweet and glorious King. And if you are able, let's please stand for the reading of God's Word. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. It's in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 17. And our text this morning will be from verses 14 to 20. The word of the Lord says this. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and they say, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers who shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he said, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, least his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, a copy of his law approved by the Levitical priests. And he shall, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and the statutes and doing them. And that his heart may, may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." Saints may be seated. <clears throat> in verses fourteen through twenty, we have before us pinned by Moses four characteristics that the king was to have. Four traits in which the king was to take on. So let's consider these four characteristics and just four subpoints. Number one, a king selected. A king selected. When Israel entered into the land of Canaan for the first time, they weren't allowed to choose for themselves any man who they wanted to be king. They couldn't choose for themselves one who was the strongest, one who was the wisest. They weren't allowed to choose one who was The most popular or one who was the most uh, loved by all the others. But rather God would be the one who would determine who would rule. Not their own selfish motivations, not who they thought a king should be, but God and God alone was the one who would set a king over them. You see, it's not as if the people weren't allowed to have a king. We see this in 1 Samuel 8, 5. As the people come to Samuel, they say, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Israel desired to have a king. They wanted a king who would rule over them. They wanted a king who would judge them. But here's the Lord's response to such a request. He says in 1 Samuel 8, verses 7 and 8, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me for being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods so they're also doing to you you see the people come to samuel and say you're not doing good in your office of kingship we want one better than you but god says to samuel it's not you it's me it's not your rule that they have a problem with it's my rule It's my law. It's my statutes that they don't want to obey. We see that the Lord rejected their request. You see, it's not that Israel wanting a king that was rejected. God, amen, that Israel should have a king. But it's the kind of king that Israel wanted that the Lord denied. It wasn't them wanting a king, but it was The kind of king that they wanted. Israel wanted a king that was like every other king. They had an idea of what a certain king should be. They wanted a king that would do for them like all the other kings that the nations do or the kings do for their nations. But God set Israel apart, did he not? God chose Israel for a Specific purpose and task. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. They were to show others. They were to lead by examples. And reveal. Who the true God really is. But also they were to show what true religion looks like. They were to be a light. In the midst of darkness. And as we come to verse. 14 and 15 of our texts, Moses gives us the first characteristic of any king, and that is a king is to be selected by God. Verse 14 and 15 say this, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving to you, and you possess it and dwell dwell in it, and then they say, I will set a king over me like all the kings that are around me you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord God will choose. It is God, in God alone, who was set a king over Israel. And saints, doesn't this fit a description of our Christ? It perfectly fits who our Christ is. Jesus Christ is the chosen and elect one. He was the one in the ages of eternity that the Father called out. And this is a point, saints, that was made time and time again as we consider the servant songs of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, the Lord says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Isaiah 49, verse 1, the servant says of himself, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. In times eternal, the father and the son shook hands, if you will. A plan was established. Promises were made where the father chose the son to be the redeemer of the elect, to be a federal head, to be a representative, to go on the behalf of others. And the spirit would uphold the son. He would empower the Son in the Son's threefold office. In times eternal, when there was nothing but the blessed Trinity, the eternal Son was predestined to be the Redeemer of the elect. It was the eternal Son who was elected to be our new and better Adam. He was to be our representative head. He was chosen to be born under the law, to keep the law, He was chosen to bear on his body the scars and piercings of our sin. It was the Son who was chosen. Not the Father, not the Spirit. But it was the Son, and the Son only, because He, only He, who was the natural Son of the Father, could make us adopted sons and daughters by grace. Only the one who was in between the Father and the Spirit should be the mediator between God and man. He and only he was able to take us out of Adam's covenant of works, which says, do this and live. And by his work, place us in God's glorious covenant of grace, which says, I have done, now receive. And friends, this saving work of our Savior is what it means for him to be elected as king. We can't separate the kingship, the kingly office of Christ from his saving work. As our king, Christ subdues and he rules his people. As the king, what does he do in his life? He conquers our greatest enemy, sin and death. And then what does he do to us? He conquers our hearts. He subdues us by his glorious and irresistible grace. As our King, he subdues and he rules us and he saves us. As our King, Christ grants us spiritual life. He frees us from slavery, he frees us from sin. He frees us from any demon, any devil that tries to attempt to tempt us. Saints, this is the first point that we can't miss. That just as God was to choose a king over Israel, God chose his son to be our savior. He chose his son to be our king. And saints, is this not the greatest of news? For we see that our salvation is not rooted in our own works. Our salvation is not rooted in what can we do for God. But our salvation is rooted in God's eternal plan. And that eternal plan is grounded and centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the covenant of redemption. He is the plan that the Father made in eternity past, all of this centers around the person and work of Christ. When we say the covenant of redemption, we say Jesus Christ. For what does he do when he comes on earth? He fulfills every part of that covenant that was made between him, the Father, and the Spirit. Just as Adam had a covenant of works, Jesus Christ's covenant of works was the eternal plan of salvation. This is the first point, friends, that we have to take hold of. That Christ was chosen to be our king. We see a second characteristic that a king must have in verse 15. After the Lord has said that he will choose a king for Israel, he says, one from among your brothers. You shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Kings of Israel were required to be a part of the nation. A king was not to be a foreigner. He was not to be a stranger. He was not to be a Canaanite. He was not to be a Babylonian. But he was to be of the very flesh and blood of the nation. We know something about this in our own time, do we not? In fact, what was the big scandal uh, that happened uh, a few years ago, that Obama was not an American. You can talk to Ray more about that after the service. We want a president who is one of us, do we not? We want a president who is just like us, one who knows what it feels like to work, one who knows what it feels like to pay taxes, one who is sensitive to the people's needs and concerns, And in Israel's time, they needed a ruler who had ties to the people. One who was gentle, whose heart was with the people. And saints, is not Christ a king who's related to his people? The wonder of all wonders when we read the four accounts of Jesus in the Gospels has to be found in John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love this line from the Chalcedonian Creed. Jesus is consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead. And consubstantial with us according to the manhood. And all things like unto us without sin. What a beautiful line that is. In simple terms, what that means is all of what it means to be God, Jesus is. And at the same time, all of what it means to be man, Jesus is. He is the God-man. A divine person with a divine nature. He is the eternal son of the eternal father. But he has united himself to a true human nature. As a man, Jesus had a mother. As a man... He had to read scriptures to gain knowledge. As a true human, he learned obedience. He got angry. He got tired. He got hungry. He wept with those who wept. He felt discouragement. But as truly human, he had unwavering faith. Saints, he was one of us. It's a simple point, is it not? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Something that we know, we confess. But I think that because we hear it so much, we can lose a sort of an emotional attachment from it. We We can be desensitized to what that even means, the Word becoming flesh. I don't know, maybe because I live in this world and I study the person and work of Christ. I'm, I'm astonished every time I hear and think about God becoming man. I think about when Gregor of Nazianzus talks about the Trinity, when he contemplates the Trinity. He says, when I conceive of the one, I'm illumined by the splendor of the three. And no sooner when I think of the three, I'm carried back to the one. When I think of the one, I think of the three. When I think of the three, I think of the one. And then he says... And then my eyes are filled and the greater part of what I'm thinking escapes me. I wonder, Saints, do you have that, can you echo that when you, when you consider that the one who was very God of very God became very man of very man, condescended to our likeness to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. God without ever stop being God became man he walked among us not as a phantom not as one who was half God and half man not as one who had a human body but he had a divine mind divine will but he was one of us he was bone of our bone He was blood of our blood, and he was flesh of our flesh. And friends, when we speak about the humanity of Christ, it's of utmost importance that our Savior be truly human, is it not? For what is not assumed is not healed. If Jesus Christ does not take on all of what it means for me to be me, then all of me is not redeemed. When Adam sinned in the garden, he sinned according to our nature. And it was of necessity that the eternal Son take on the very nature that Adam sinned in in order for us to be freed, in order for our minds, our wills, our desires to be free from any stain of sin. What we have in Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ bridges the gap between God and man in His own person. When we say Jesus Christ is the mediator, He's not a third party, but He is God and man. And the glorious truth of our Christ is in Jesus Christ we have more than just a King and a Savior, but we have a brother. Wasn't that one of the requirements of a king of Israel? He had to be a brother of the nation. He had to be of the very lifeblood of the nation. What does the Bible say that Jesus is? He's our brother. He's our king, but he's also our friend. Our king is a friend to sinners. He's a king to poor and afflicted persons because he himself was a poor and afflicted person. Friends, what a beautiful king we have in Christ. A king who was able to sympathize with our weaknesses. A king who is right now seated at the right hand of the Father. He's upholding the universe by the word of his power. Enemies upon enemies are being placed under his feet. But in light of all that, our king is not distant from us. Yes, our king is ruling and reigning, but our king's heart is with his people. Although he is seated at the right hand of the Father, his heart is with you, saints. Saints, this is the second characteristic of our king, and that is he is to be among his own. We see in verse 16 and 17 the third characteristic of a king, and that is a king is to be purely focused, purely focused. Verse 16 and 17 say this, Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, Or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he said, you shall not require many wives for himself. Least his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold and silver. Here Moses emphasizes how important this command is. Because he takes Two long verses to tell us about three different situations in which a king was not to find himself in. In a nutshell, what verses 16 and 17 are saying is a king is to have a single focus, one eye as it will. He was to have an undivided attention. And these three things Moses says that a king is to be cautious about are the three things that... We are to consider he was not to have a collection of horses. He was not to have a multiplication of wives and he was not to be a lover of wealth. Let's consider these three things briefly. First, a king is not to have a collection of horses. Verse 16 says only he must not acquire many horses for himself or causes people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. In these days, the best horses were found in Egypt. And a king who was desiring to build his military strength would send people to Egypt in order to buy the best horses money could buy. Friends, the point that is being made is twofold. First, a king who is focused on military preparations has his allegiance undivided or divided. But secondly, a king who sends his people back to Egypt, it signifies a regression. To leave the promised land, to leave the, ha- the land that God has brought them to, to go back to slavery, was to mock God. It was to spit in the face of what God has done for them. Go back to Egypt. Go back down that road. That same road that led them out of the promised land. Secondly, a king is to be cautioned in multiplying wives. Verse 17, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself. lest his heart turn away. A king was to have one lover. There was not, no, he was not to allow the sin of lust to turn his heart away from his first love. But he was to remain faithful and committed to his wife—only one wife. What a king was to have, and saints. There's much spiritual undertones in this warning, as there not. A king who would marry other women would ultimately lead his people in marrying other gods. A king who had an eye out for other women also could lead his people to have an eye out for other gods. A king was to lead by example. And thirdly, a king was cautioned in multiplying silver and gold. We know from movies and maybe from personal experience that a lover of money is a dangerous man. Maybe the most dangerous man on this earth. Much blood shed and and the people that have been betrayed in our history is caused by a love of money. And a king in Israel's time was to have his heart pure from any desire to be rich. The kings of Israel were required to live, as it were, with one eye. They were required to have one focus. One focus, one soul dedication One exclusive allegiance. These three traits pictured for us are also seen in our Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? Our king, Jesus Christ, is not interested in building an army, but rather saving a people. Jesus Christ is the better Moses. Everything Moses was not, Jesus Christ is in his person. Who conquers a greater enemy than Pharaoh. He takes out of, he takes us out of the darkness of sin, which was our Egypt. And he places us in his kingdom of light. He doesn't require us to go back to Egypt. He doesn't say, go walk that same path in which I brought you out of. We aren't to flirt or reminisce about our old life in Egypt. I find it strange that preachers love to talk about their old and past life. I did this, I did that. Why talk about slavery when the chains have been taken off of your ankles and wrists? We are to press forward. We are not to turn back. And if we are at any moment to talk about our past life, It is what Jesus Christ has done for us in his person and work. In his life, Jesus conquers not by military force. He tells Peter in Matthew 28 that if he appealed to his father, that he could send down more than 12 legions of angels. Our Lord would conquer in a different way. He will be the man of Isaiah 42 verse 2, which says he will not cry aloud or lift his voice, lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break or a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Our king will not be like all the other kings who speak loudly of themselves in order to gain the applause and the approval of the multitude. He will not make his way by loud and overwhelming talk, but with gentle words, with kind words, he will conquer men's hearts. Not by military force, but by the spirit, he conquers our enemies and he rules our hearts. Secondly, we see that Jesus was one whose heart remained faithful to his bride. Jesus was not married to any woman, in light of what you might read in liberal theology. He was not married to Mary Magdalene. He did not have a wife for himself, but he was married to one person. When Jesus Christ sees us, he sees one people. Jesus Christ on earth was not married to anybody physically, but spiritually he was married to his church. Jesus Christ was married to his people. Jesus Christ did all things out of love for his father and for the love of his bride. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, a famous verse, Friends, our husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There was one bride who Christ was always thinking of. There was one bride whom he bore the marks of sin in his body for. In order to present us pure before the Father. In order to present us like that woman who comes down on her wedding day without a stain on her white dress. Jesus Christ wore our stain of sin. Jesus Christ never cheated on his church. He never had eyes for another bride. In spite of our unfaithfulness, his love for us never wavered. And friends, what glorious truth this is, that in Christ we have a king, but we also have a husband. As meditating, or when I was meditating on this text and preparing for this text, this verse was, Of a special encouragement for me. I think about all the times when I have made my wife shake her head. All the times when I have made my wife mad at me. All the times when I have not been faithful to the man whom I'm supposed to be. All the times when I'm sure my wife asked, why did I marry this man? this is of some encouragement to me to note that in spite of my failures, there is a greater husband who loves my wife, who can do for her what I can never do for her, who will never fail her, who will never make her sad, who will never lift up her voice, his voice. I think about the wives who are here, Think about that when your husband has felled you. When your husband has caused you to shake your head in disgust. Think about Christ, who is your faithful husband. Ex-wives who are here. You might have had a husband who was unfaithful to you. A husband who treated you wrongly, crudely, unkindly. Saints, I say to you that in light of a history of bad marriage, you have a marriage in Jesus Christ that will never, that will never, ever go away. If you think for one second that Christ has divorced you, what does God tell Israel? Where are the divorce papers? You say that I've sold you. Where's the person that I've sold you to? Me as a husband, we're not we're not far from this either when we think about our own marriages. We can look to Jesus Christ. And we have a beautiful picture of what a marriage should be like. Jesus Christ and his church, a match made in heaven. The third and final tra- trait we see Christ fulfill is that he is not a lover of wealth and money. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 24, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus Christ was a king who never desired earthly riches. In fact, he told others to sell all that you have to follow me our Lord knew the dangers that the love of money could bring. For the love of money, people sold outside of the temple courts. For the love of money, he was betrayed by a friend. Friends, money isn't a bad thing. But the love of money could make people do the dumbest of things. From my own experience, shepherding in this church, I've seen people, for the love of money, Leave a church to a place where they're offering them more money to never return back to church. I've seen people who have come with no money. As soon as they get a job, they get some money. They stop coming to church. I've seen people who, when they get money, they blow it right away and not even consider giving God their first fruits. Friends, don't be a lover of money. Be one who is like Christ, who does not care, who does not worry about an excessive amount of silver and gold. So in summary, what do we have in Jesus Christ? We have a king who lived his life, who rules his people with a single eye, with a single focus. In verses 18 and 19, we have the fourth and final characteristic of a king. And that is a king was to be a lover and doer of God's law. Look at verse 18 and 19, if you will. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, in a book, a copy of his law, approved by the biblical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. And he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his of this law and these statutes and doing them. Friends, note the requirements that the king was to follow regarding the law of God. He was to write it out. He himself, not a scribe, not one of his servants, but he himself was to copy by hand the law of God. Now, This doesn't mean that the king was to copy simply the Ten Commandments down. But rather, he was to write the entire book of Deuteronomy down. You see, the majority of the book of Deuteronomy is an exposition, an expansion, but also an application of the Ten Commandments. And writing out the book of Deuteronomy was to be the king's guide and rule book. What all this means, saints, is the king was to use the scriptures to rule and reign over his people. He was not to rule by his own law, but he was to be governed by God's law. God's word was to be the king's compass. It was to be his constitution. He was to know the law so intimately. Almost as if he wrote it himself. The king was to live by every letter of God's law, and he was to submit to God's law. And saints, doesn't this fact fit the description of our Christ perfectly? Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. Friends, if we were to sum up the life of Christ in one word. It would be obedience. Jesus Christ lived a life of perfect obedience to the law of God. Jesus came in this earth as one who was the offer the obedience that Adam fell to render. He was the offer the obedience that Israel can never get right. He was the lawgiver. He gave Moses the law. But in the incarnation, he places himself under the demands of the law. As an Israelite, he was ob- obligated to obey the ceremonial and civil laws of the day. As one who is truly human, he was required to obey the moral law of God. Think about that, friends. We only obey the laws of God when cops are around we only obey the laws of God when people are watching. Imagine the pressure that might have been on our Christ. Every single day, he had to be aware of what he was doing. All of us, day by day, break the law of God just on our own hearts. Not by deed, but just by our thoughts, by our heart's intentions. We break the law of God. But it was not so with our King. Not only did Jesus never physically break a commandment of God, but inwardly, his heart never struggled to obey God. Obeying the law of God was just so natural for him. It's just what he did. He didn't try. It's just who he was. In his life, Jesus exemplified the two greatest commandments. He loved God with all his heart, soul, and mind, and he loved his neighbor as himself. And while other kings were required to write down God's law and to read it day by day, Jesus had the law of God written on his heart. Indeed, Jesus is the blessed man of Psalm 1, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And he meditates, and on his law, he meditates day and night. Quick side note, Psalm 1 has always been about Jesus Christ. He's always been the one who meditates on God's law and delights in God's law. And friends, you must understand this, that in Christ's life, he doesn't kill the law. There might be people that say, well, Christ is above the law. He can do whatever he wants with the law. No, he cannot. The law is God's standard for holy and righteous living. It reveals and reflects the very character and holiness of God. Jesus Christ doesn't throw the law away, for the law is good. But however, in our fallen state, the law places a dark cloud over our heads. Because any time we attempt to obey God's law, what do we do? We sin, but by faith alone in Christ alone, the perfect law-keeping, righteous life of Christ is accredited to our account. Think about that. Every word, every thought, every deed, every action is accredited to us as if we lived the life of Christ When the father sees Christ, he sees us. And when he sees us, he sees clothed in the righteousness of his son. Our king didn't just obey God's law for himself, but he did so for his people. And as we conclude our exposition of our text, we see the great reward if a king does all that's required of him. The ending of verse 20 says this, he may continue long in his kingdom he and his children in Israel. This is what was prophesied of our Lord in Luke chapter 1, is it not? The angel tells Mary, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, there will be no end. But ultimately, what was Christ's reward if he fulfilled that which the Father laid upon him in times eternal. We find our answer in Philippians 2, verse 9 and 10. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name, the name that is above every name, so that in the name or at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What was given to Jesus Christ? He was given a name. He was given resurrected, glorified life. But saints, I want you to notice something. Notice the text says, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every person will kneel to Jesus Christ. People will kneel before our king. But the ironic thing about this is that in Christ's life, He kneeled before others. Our king kneeled down to wash his disciples' feet. He kneeled down to heal the sick. He kneeled down to pray to his father. This should be striking to us because kings aren't supposed to kneel. But Christ didn't think of himself superior to his brothers. He was one with his people. He was a servant. He wasn't ashamed to kneel before others because one day others would kneel before him. And saints, in conclusion, from our sermon this morning, what we see is that Deuteronomy's king finds his fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. He is everything that Israel wanted in a king. Jesus is our king, friends, but he's more than that, is he not? When John in Revelation 7 sees the throne of God, what does he see? He says in verse 17, for the lamb is in the center of the throne, will be their shepherd. In Christ, we have a king, but we also have a shepherd. He is our shepherd king. And his kingship is not marked by ruling with an iron fist or oppressive law, but with humility and gentleness. That is why we can approach with confidence the throne of God. Because he's not some evil dictator, but he is our shepherd. When we behold the king, we behold the shepherd. When we behold the shepherd, we behold the servant. And when we behold the servant, we behold the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Who by his perfect work was given a people who will rule and reign with him into the ages of eternity. Friends, what is the confidence that you have in this life and the one that's to come? Is that Jesus Christ is the sovereign. But he's also our perfect savior. Let's pray.